Well, we're starting a new series on collaboration, and uh, thanks to Chris Cass, that's the trailer video for the series. And uh, if you remember two weeks ago, as part of this, just because it has to do with kind of all of us who are, are coming together in church in some sense, I had a question card in the bulletin and asked people if they would just write down questions. And so a lot of you participated, wrote down a lot of questions, and kind of pulled those in. Uh, one of you even asked um, how I was able to get such large biceps, and, um, <laughs> and I appreciate the question, but I do recognize sarcasm when I see it, so um, thank you for that. But there were a lot of questions on one thing, so I want to kind of uh, speak to that this morning, but there were a lot of questions on how and when Antioch does communion. So the church Antioch, how and when do we get together and do this thing called communion? Now, basically, communion, if it's, if it's newer to you, communion is something that Jesus implemented uh, right before he died. Basically, he and his disciples were, were sharing the Passover meal together. And then Jesus says, from now on, this Passover meal isn't going to be about what it used to be. It's going to be about me. And what it used to be was this, the story of Moses in Egypt and before the Israelites leave, uh, if you remember, there's kind of the last of the plagues or the last thing that happened to the Egyptians. And it was that the firstborn sons would die of every household that didn't mark its doorpost and basically kind of say, I'm with God. And so God led his people out kind of with this miracle. And, and when, when the angel of death passed over houses, and they were supposed to always remember that. That what happened, what it took, how God did it, how being identified with God was what saved them in some sense. And so they were supposed to have this Passover meal once a year. And they would gather into homes. The families would come together. They would have different elements in the meal. And it was basically a symbolic thing, a tradition, to point people back. And the fascinating thing about um, the, the Jews and the Christians and the people of the book kind of were all about tradition. We're about looking back and always seeing what God has done because when we see what God has done, that's kind of in, in some sense the source of our faith as we go into life, into the future. That looking back helps us walk forward. And so this is kind of this tradition that way. There was other ones in the Old Testament for the Hebrews. There was uh, the idea of touchstones or putting together little altars or just little symbolic things of God did something right here at this place. Uh, we can visually see it and we can remember it. And there, was, there were holidays and there were other things that, that people did, traditions, to kind of look back. And the Passover, in some sense, was the, the largest or most important of all of these things. And Jesus says, so God delivered you by the death of those firstborn sons, and now his firstborn son, myself, is going to die to rescue you again in a more spiritual sense, to save everyone, to die for mankind. And so now when you do this symbolic thing and you look, you look back, it's, it's to me. That's what you're looking back to. And so the elements, remember those symbolic elements of, of kind of the, the table or the meal, the bread and the drink and those things, those are going to remind you of, of me. My body that was broken, my blood that was shed, um, the freedom that came through that. Okay? So that's, in some sense, communion. Now, where we go from there is really interesting, and it, and it matters because it's why we do what we do as a church. 
communion became something different as you go through church history. And it became less about a meal um, coming together relationally and looking back and more about a ritual or, or mass or, or different things like that that an individual does to take in grace. And so part of your being sustained or part of of your being saved as you progress through life was by coming and taking uh, a drink um, and, and a little kind of bit of the bread here, basically the elements, and you're taking in grace. And it became a, a very spiritual, ritualistic act that happened on a regular basis because in some sense that's the source of life for believers as they went through the Middle Ages and, and kind of all the way on. Now, the Reformers, it's really fascinating if you go back to the 1500s and Martin Luther and Calvin and these guys, they're reacting to a lot of things that were a part of the church at that time that weren't in Scripture. And a lot of them actually, in some sense, contradicted Scripture. And you wonder, well, how could that be? Well, it was pretty simple. There, the Bible at that point in time was in Latin. And there was a lot of priests that couldn't even read Latin. And so you have a lot of kind of cultural things and traditions that crop up. And there's really no way to, to kind of um, check that against kind of the authoritative source. And so what, what happened was the, the Greek New Testament came out. And all of a sudden people are able to look again at the original writings of Scripture on more of a regular basis. And then they translate it. Luther translates it into German. Uh, Tyndall translates the Bible into English, and people are all of a sudden able to kind of look again and see what a lot, a lot of uh, what Scripture intended that might not be the same as culture. And so there's a lot of things going on with the Reformation, and they reacted to church, to the idea of priests being above uh, people. You know, pastors aren't above people. We're all, it's called the priesthood of believers, we're all members in the body of Christ, of equal value, equal worth. And you don't go through me or anybody else to get to God. You're able to go directly to God, as it says in Hebrews, to go boldly before the throne. And so there's a lot of things that they were reacting to, the Reformers. One of the things they didn't react to too much, they, they took issue with what was meant by communion or mass. They, they kind of said, you know what? It, the idea is that grace is enough, that Christ's death is enough, that the gospel is enough, that when I identify with that, that's sufficient. That I don't have to perform an ongoing work to take something in to kind of um, slowly fill me up um, or, or give me that means of grace. Okay? So they focused on that aspect of communion and chose not to focus on, in some sense, how it was done, you know, the regularity of it or how it it actually functioned in the community. They were kind of going more at the theological importance of it. And so what, what's happened with a lot of churches, as you come into the Protestant circles, uh, the Baptist churches that, that I was used to pastor and be a part of, it's really interesting because we will pass around a little, a little wafer and a little cup, and that's supposed to represent this meal that people would have in their homes once a year. And if that little wafer and that little cup is a meal then, you know, most of us would be a lot skinnier, for one. Uh, but what, what begins to happen is it degenerates from a communal thing where we together are looking back and being reminded. It degenerates into a more individualistic, ritualistic, spiritual thing. And so if you've grown up in church, you might remember sitting there and kind of this pressure put on you in the sense of you need to hurry up and prepare yourself for communion. And 
and you kind of sit there and you're like, I, gotta, I better hurry up and think of all the things I've done wrong so I can hurry up and confess them so that I can hurry up and get worthy for this ritualistic thing to come by so that I can partake of it. Now, does a red flag go up there? I mean, there, there should, because the whole idea of remembering Christ is that he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We can't work ourselves up to being worthy. We can't work ourselves up to being pure. We, we are not sufficient in that way. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the whole idea of Jesus coming is, I'm making up the difference for you, a sinner. My grace takes you, a sinner, and gets it all the way up to where you're worthy. And that's good news. And so here's the, the kind of elements coming. And we're hurrying up and saying, before that gets here, I have to be worthy of taking this. And, and we begin to lose the whole idea of what's happening with this symbolic meal of looking back to what Christ did, which is sufficient. And we begin to look for our sufficiency in ourselves. So there's a lot of strange things that go on with communion that we've kind of just brought with us down, down the years. And so one of the things this church did from the very beginning was to say, if you were on a desert island with a Bible... Um, or if you just opened up Scripture and looked at these things, what would it look like? What would we do? Because that really is the authority. Not whose opinions or whose cultural experience or what happened when you went to a church in Oklahoma or, or whatever. We want to look at Scripture and say, what does that look like? And what it looks like is, is the continuation of the Passover meal that was in the Old Testament. That meal that was a fellowship thing, a community thing, to remember what, G- what God did first back in those days and then did again through Jesus and brings it forward this way. And so we choose to do communion four times a year, not every week, not once a month, but four times a year we get together in, on an evening and kind of gather as a family and we try and make it as meaningful as possible through testimonies, uh, through a, a little bit of the vision going on at the church, through a little sermon regarding it, and then a time of worship, and then taking part in communion, and really trying to infuse it with as much community significance as we can. Now that might be different than what you've grown up with. It might not be your preference, but it's perfectly biblical. Now, is it the only biblical one? No, certainly not. I mean, you could do dozens of things with communion or this, this kind of act of remembrance that would fit with what Scripture gives us. And we, we're going to all have different opinions and, and come to different conclusions that way. But the idea is we want to make sure that what we do as a church is biblical. Well, why, why do we do it in an evening instead of here on a Sunday morning? Well, there's two reasons. One, not everybody that comes in on a Sunday morning understands all of that background and all of what's going on there. And there's a sense in Corinthians where Paul talks about um, the gathering of believers. And he says, you're going to be bringing in friends or visitors, and, and it shouldn't be chaotic. It shouldn't be confusing. You should understand what's going on. Secondly, the idea that we should always do communion when we're together, a lot of the arguments that come from that come from Paul's writings to little home churches. Little home churches, which is a lot different than what we see of a church of uh, 400 people. The home churches were meeting in a house, and when they came together, they were able to have a meal. Paul even talks about some people with just plain bad manners that were like eating before others got there. And, and the whole implication, again, is that this is a meal and that they should wait and kind of, even though you're hungry, wait till the rest of the people get there before you eat. 
And so when Paul's writing about community, he's talking about a home setting, a, a relational setting. When we see a church that's larger like this, we look at Jerusalem, and you see thousands of people gathering at the temple courts, and they gather there to teach uh, for teaching. They gather there to come together as all the believers. And then they leave, and what do they do? They go back to homes, and there's two different things. There's the breaking of bread, which is really a fellowship kind of idea. And then there's taking the Lord's Supper or communion, which is, again, this kind of symbolic meal. So they don't do it at the temple courts with everybody passing kind of a little piece of bread and doing it that way. They go back to the homes because, again, the significance is communion is not about me, myself, my spirituality. It's about us as a covenant community who has been redeemed by a loving God who makes up the difference for us, that he takes the initiative. And so we come together under him and we look back. So that's, that's another reason, in some sense, why we don't do it on Sunday mornings. We say on Sunday mornings, there's visitors. There's people that might not even have a relationship with God yet. But when we gather in the evenings, it's the people that have committed to this church. And they come aside, and we talk about the deep things that really matter. And we try and, we try and really do this with our minds in the right place, not just as a ritualistic act where we're somehow trying to make ourselves worthy in and of our, in and of our own uh, resources. It's like a works kind of a thing, you know? We try really hard to, to please God that way. So that's how we do it. So when do we do it? We're, we try to do it four times a year. We used to do it at McMinimins, which was kind of funny because there's like Father Luke's room, tobacco signs everywhere, um, you know, kind of a fun environment. But we outgrew that. So we were really scrambling trying to find where we do this on a regular basis. The last couple times and then the next time we're going to be at Summer's Hardwood Flooring on Thursday nights where the, the college and singles group kind of meets. And so we're going to just take that location and use that for the community to come together. So the next one, if you look in your bulletin, it was there last week. It's in your bulletin if you want to go home and write it down. But I think it's October 23rd on a Thursday night. And so those of you that are curious about why we do communion the way we do, how we do it, when we do it, um, four times a year we come together as a church body. Uh, the next time is October 23rd. Uh, can you disagree with that? Method, sure. Like I said, it's, it's not the only way of doing it, but it certainly fits with what Scripture says. It's, there's, there's room for other expressions, but we want to at least be faithful and in line with what kind of Scripture leads us to do that way. So that's just a little bit on that. Well, um, pivoting awkwardly into more of a, where we're heading with collaboration and the whole idea of why we have a sermon series called Collaboration. The... The word collaboration is really just, it's two Latin words. It's the Latin prefix for with, and then the Latin word for to labor. And the whole idea is to labor with or to work together. I mean, this whole idea of coming together and working together. It's the opposite, in my mind, of the word committee, which is Latin for waste of time. Um, I have a... I, I came across this is from a New York Times writer in 1960. And this is what he says about committee. He says, what is a committee? It's a group of the unwilling picked from the unfit to do the unnecessary. And hopefully what we're trying to say here is with collaboration, the whole idea of church and community and the way God has designed kind of everything to work, we're going to begin to look at it and cash it out in, in the sense of this coming together this, this idea of relationship, this idea of collaboration. And so that's kind of the big idea. Now, I, I think to set it up, I'll, I'll give you a little story of when I worked at summer camp because 
if you've ever worked at summer camp, you know everything in your life comes back to summer camp. Um, I'm no different. But I worked at this camp called Pine Summit in uh, Big Bear, California, up in the mountains for three summers. And it was gorgeous. It was high desert climate, beautiful sunshine, these, these tall ponderosa pines. And there was this game that we used to set up the last two summers I was there. We had these kind of walls that were about yay high that you put in a big circle with two little goal nets. And it was this, this ground hockey game, like, uh, like on foot, kind of playing hockey with a little ball and hockey sticks and all that. Street hockey, I guess would be another way of saying it. And there was really only one paved area you could have it on. It was the parking lot where there were some basketball hoops and also all the, the vans and church buses would come and drop people off. And so we would set it up there, and it was kind of the catch-all game in the late afternoons, kind of um, yellow sun coming that way. It was fun time for me. Uh, the guys really loved it. It was aggressive. You work it out, and then you go to dinner. But invariably what would happen is there's too many guys that would end up kind of in the court, and no matter how many rules you had, like no like follow-through on the sticks, you've got to keep them on the ground, you know, and all these guys, these, these little boys are playing baseball, and so, I mean, that's just how they swing, you know. Uh, a lot of stitches. The, uh, no matter how many rules you had, no ma- matter how much you kind of talked about what the goal was here, pretty soon the, the adults would kind of step back and realize that we'd lost control. It was, it, I, you know, who knows what it was anymore, but it wasn't hockey. And so you'd kind of step back and you'd look at what's going on and you're like, you know, should I really try and tweak with little things here? Like, oh, you should pass it. Oh, Play, play your position. Don't just run after the ball like, you know, a herd of whatever. Um, hey, this is a team thing. Or, hey, we need to actually keep track of goals. Uh, I mean, they would take the ball out of the goal so fast and try and run down to the other side. That, I mean, there's just lost all sense of order. So, I mean, the, the adults would kind of look at that, and there's this, t- this sense of do I keep trying to tweak the little things uh, or do I just look at this and say we've lost the whole picture of what was really going on or supposed to be going on. I mean, we're no longer playing hockey. We're just killing time before dinner is, is really what it is. And I think sometimes in church or in the Christian life, we, we, have, the same, we have the same story going on, that it, it, it loses its sense of order and it loses its sense of um, purpose as to what it connects back to. Why are we doing all these little things? Why is there a ball? Why are these sticks? Why are we running back and forth? What's the overarching game that's being played here? And I think sometimes pastors look at that or, or Christians look at that. Other, other Christians, you know, I hate the word pastor, so I shouldn't even use that. Um, I still, for two years, have been trying to see if someone will come up with a better name than pastor that we can use because I just don't like the word. Um, what it means is shepherd, and I think that's even worse. Can you imagine, like, shepherd Kip? Shepherd, <laughs> shepherd Brandon, you know? But if there's like another word that would be better, uh, I'm all for it. Anyways, I mean, all of us as Christians, or whatever you're leading, or whatever you're doing, or certainly if you're focused on a, a ministry, you know, Ian with On Track, or, or whatever, you know, the people that are really focused in on this whole thing called Christianity, I think sometimes you look at it and you're like a coach in that circumstance, and you're like, you know, I could point out so many little things here. I mean, there's so many things that we need to speak to, but it's almost futile. The real issue here is that we have to all step back and kind of hook into the big idea. Like, what's the game that's really being played here? And I think we're at one of those seasons in North American Christianity. 
where we're, we're so focused on the, the little tweaks and the little this is and that's and, and, and we've kind of are, are in a, a, we kind of need to step back and just realize we've lost sight of the whole game. Okay? And I want to try and show you what I mean by that. And the whole idea is that, that we were created for relationship. And that we, our starting point when we come to Christianity these days is 100 degree, 180 degrees out from that. That the Hebrew mind was, I am an Israelite first. I'm a part of God's covenant people. I'm, I'm an Israelite. I'm in a certain proximity to God. Where I stand is in relation to God. And I'm then of this tribe, of, of this family. My, my last name is kind of um, son of or daughter of, and, and that's kind of an identity too. And then the last thing is I've got a name, and the Hebrews named their children names that had meanings. It wasn't, you know, here's a cool sounding thing, or it's spelled out in a cool way or whatever. Like the names had meaning. But you start with this identity being rooted in the people of God, then the family, and then you come over here, and it's, it's as an individual. Where we're at in, in 21st century America is the complete opposite. We're an individual first. I am who I am. And family is kind of next, but it's less important. And it's like, you know, hey, I'll go back for Thanksgiving and Christmas and just keep kind of my foot in the door that way. But really, I'm not living life with my family. That's not my identity. My identity is over here with kind of the dreams I'm pursuing. And then lastly, country. Wow, who really cares? I mean, it's a broken system anyways. Um, you know, it's whatever, my country. I can't do anything to change it. Maybe I should care now because they, they hold my mortgage. You know, I don't know. Um, but the idea of country becomes just so much less for us in this day and age. And we're 180 degrees out in the way we start, kind of the starting position. And it makes an already difficult thing even harder. And what I want to do this morning, I, I, I sat around for five hours stressing yesterday, not being able to make any progress on a sermon and driving my wife absolutely crazy. Um, and all it ended up being was just a lot of good prayer time. But I want to try and map this out instead of looking at one place, just try and take a survey of it. And say this, that we were made for relationship, to be with, this whole working with, to be involved with, to be in relationship with. And it starts all the way at the garden. And Adam and Eve were created, and they were with God, together with God. And then when sin happens, there's a separation. Uh, there's a break in that relationship. And God begins taking initiatives to try and heal that relationship and bring it back into a position of, of I am God and you're dependent on me. We're in this kind of relationship. So moving out from there, you see the covenants come. And the covenants are fascinating things where God comes and makes promises and tries to say, I'm going to work with you. I want to be there with you. Some of the covenants are what's called conditional covenants. And it's like the, the Mosaic covenant. And the conditional covenant is, if you do this, then this is what will happen. If you obey me, then I can bless you because I'll affirm when it's working well. And if you disobey me, if you walk away from me, then there's these curses that'll come. And, and I have to have that there because I can't affirm something that's broken. I've got to turn it back towards the right path. And that's a conditional covenant. There's other covenants, though, with Abraham and, and um, where it's like, I am going to come and do this amazing thing. I am going to provide for you kind of the sacrifice. 
I'm going to do at the, the, the 11th hour what you cannot do for yourself. And we see Jesus being one of those things where God just acts on his own. It's not this conditional thing. And so you, but you see these covenants. The whole idea of a covenant is trying to bring us back into a relationship with God. And so the Israelites go into Egypt, but God provided because Joseph, remember his brothers, Solomon to slavery. And he says later, what you meant for bad, God uses for good. He was... 12 chess moves ahead, and he knew he was going to provide for his people all the way down in Egypt. The people that, starting with Abraham, I'm going to call a people unto myself, okay? He's going to take care of them. And then he raises up Moses, and Moses is going to lead him out because God wants his people to be where he can have this relationship with them and be with them. So they go into the desert. Moses goes up on the hill. Moses gets 10 commandments, and if you look at the 10 commandments, they're all relational commandments, How our relationship with God is supposed to be. You're not supposed to have any other gods. You're not supposed to use my name in vain. These kinds of things. And then how our relationship with other people is supposed to be governed. You're not supposed to kill. You're not supposed to take someone else's wife. You're not supposed to do these things. And so Moses goes up. God gives him all these relational principles for how you're supposed to live with others and with God. He comes down the mountain and he looks. And what have they already done? They've gone looking for another God to be in relationship with. And he breaks those tablets of stone and he, and, and he has to go back up the mountain. But it's such this frustrating thing that these people have already wandered off looking for relationships somewhere else. So they go into the land and what does it say in Judges? The people began to do what was right in their own eyes. It's the old uh, Greek philosophical principle. Man is the measure of all things. And everybody starts getting individualistic and saying, I'm not in a dependent relationship with God. I'm independent and I'm going to make my own decisions. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. So God raises up judges to kind of bring this back into a right relationship. And then we move on, and, and God goes looking for a king that will lead his people. And he, he finds one that's, that's a, a king or a man after his own heart, David. And it's because he's humble. Not perfect, right? But humble. So David has a son named Solomon. Solomon begins doing some really stupid things. It says in Deuteronomy that someday when you have kings, this is Moses talking to the people, someday when you have kings, that king is not supposed to go multiply horses or multiply wives or multiply riches. His job exists to serve the people to help that all stay in relationship. The people don't exist to serve him so that he can maximize self again. So what happens with Solomon? He's wiser than than anybody else. You see that. But he begins to multiply horses and and he begins to multiply his wealth and and he becomes the most powerful in some sense monetarily or by worldly standards of anybody. And he takes his own fellow Israelites and enslaves them so that they can in some sense build his pyramids. I mean, obviously he didn't build pyramids, but the idea is he's beginning to act again like the Pharaoh did in Egypt. Breaking relationship. It's not about relationship with God and his people. I'm now using people to serve me. It's about self. And so his son comes along and he, he seeks advice of, of Solomon's wise men. And they say, you know what? Uh, your dad worked the people too hard. You need to back off of that. And then, and this is so typical. I mean, it's one of the funniest things in scripture. So then Solomon's son says, okay, that's, that's your take. Let me go talk to my friends. <laughs> 
you know, the other 20-year-olds or, or whatever that are my buddies and see what they say. And so he goes and talks to them, and they're like, oh, no, this is a great opportunity. Let's, let's make it even worse, and like, let's build faster and get more stuff. And let's, you know, now that we've got the kingship, let's use it. You know, that kind of a deal. And he sides with kind of the foolish counsel this way. And as soon as he does, God comes and he rips, he rips, uh, he rips Israel out of the hands of that king. He, he divides the kingdom. He says, I'm not going to let you, who were put in a position to keep relationship together, botch everything because you want it all to serve you. I'm not going to let that happen anymore. So he breaks the kingdom up. So then it goes further, right? Good kings, bad kings, good king, bad, bad kings. Eventually it gets so bad that we have the prophets come along and God is going to discipline He's going to discipline his people that are supposed to be in a relationship and they're not. So he's going to discipline them. And you, got, you have one-fifth of all of Scripture. It's this unique thing called the prophets, major prophets and minor prophets. One-fifth of all of Scripture. And what is it there to say? The, I mean, the unified message of all of the prophets in the Scripture is this. I'm going to discipline you, or I am disciplining you, and this is why. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever thought about that? It's kind of a unique chunk of Scripture that you don't see anywhere else. And the whole of one-fifth of the whole Bible that we have that God has left for us is God trying to talk directly, speak directly about, I am disciplining you, or I'm going to discipline you, and this is why. You've walked away from me. I can't have that. This whole thing's supposed to be in relationship. He even has one of his prophets, Hosea, go and marry a prostitute, that's going to leave him and cheat on him so that he can then say in a really symbolic way, this is like it is with me and my nation Israel. We were supposed to be married. We were supposed to be one. We were supposed to be united. And you have wandered away and been unfaithful. There's no fidelity in that relationship. isn't Isn't that wild? I mean, he has a prophet do this to make it this great teaching point of this is what's actually happening. Listen to Isaiah, Isaiah 50. Just starting at the beginning of Isaiah 50. This is what God says. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? The same language again about kind of this marriage between God and Israel. Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or to which of my creditors did I sell you? Because of your sins... You were sold. Because of your transgressions, your mother was sent away. And when I came, why was there no one? And when I called, why was there no one to answer? Was my arm too short to ransom you? Did I lack the strength to rescue you? And he goes on and says, You know, I've got this power to rebuke, um, and the sea would turn dry, and the rivers would go into a desert. I mean, he says, It's not because of me that this thing is happening. It's because you have wandered away and been unfaithful to the relationship that we had. Why I chose this passage is because it's amazing. It goes into then a prophecy about Jesus coming. He's basically prophesying right there, or God is, is, is tipping his hand right there. You guys can't be faithful. And I'm already working to fix that whole problem. 
I'm going to do something totally different down the road when this suffering servant, uh, this Messiah comes, and he's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to be faithful where you are faithless. And then that can be, in some sense, transferred over to you so that I can consider you righteous, which simply means right with God. I can, cons- I can look at you, and we can have this conversation even though you're prone to wander, even though you sin. I'm already beginning to solve this problem because relationship has to be there. So the prophets go on, and, and, and then you get to the New Testament, and you've got these amazing things where Jesus says, if you want to boil it all down, it's about this, love God and love others. It's relational. And Paul comes and he, he, he says, when you get right with God, the fruit of the Spirit, that, that, that relationship, what comes from that, is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, mercy, you know, self-control, gentleness. Those are relational qualities. The whole idea is as, as we get right with God, when we're walking with God, we are at the core of our being relational beings. Not independent, individualistic, self-serving beings. Now, this is really funny because Jesus calls out, and I was reading them the other, the other day, I looked at the seven woes where he gets and just blasts the religious leaders. So you've got over here, uh, you've got over here um, the people that need God. And you're maybe coming in this morning and you need God. Um, life is difficult. It's more than what you can take, and you desperately need God to rescue you. Um, Psalm 40, you know, to, to lift you up out of the pit, out of the mire, out of the mud. And you want God, you want to be with God, and the whole idea is God has said, those are the people I want to be with. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest for your souls. And so these are the poor and the downtrodden, and Jesus speaks to them and says, you know, blessed are those who mourn. I'm going to take care of you over here. On the other side are the people that are obeying God. They're taking all that they have, all that they are, and saying, I follow you, God. Anything that's mine is yours. I want to be with you, co-labor with you. Tell me what I'm doing because I have extra and I'm, I'm willing to minister. But I'm following you and I'm obeying you. And then you got in the middle this category of people that don't need God and aren't serving God. These are the Romans that Jesus, Jesus ignored for the most part. And now here's the, the real kicker, though. This is also the category where the Pharisees are in. So those that are supposed to be leading the people of God back into relationship with God are in the middle here, and they're neglecting the people that really need God. They're not helping them. And they're not using their talents and their energy and their gifts to serve God They're doing the opposite, and they're using religion to serve their own agenda. And Jesus, man, if Jesus was like a brawler, like these would have been the guys he would have just fought with. I mean, he hated, I don't know if I can say that. Seems like it. I mean, he called them a brood of vipers and snakes. And I mean, that doesn't, I don't know. Maybe he, he, He was really upset. Okay. Because the people that are supposed to get this with God thing have neglected God and they're actually destroying the system. And they're using religion to serve their own ends. That's why the communion thing matters. 
that we were talking about earlier. You know, the things we do matter because we ultimately have to say, is religion something that's coming into and scratching an itch we have um, because we're our own individualistic self, yet we're less than what we know we ought to be, and we need to appease that somehow? Or is it coming in and, and allowing us to climb a ladder so that we're above other people? Or is it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it serving an agenda that means I don't need God? Or is communion over here saying, God, I can't do it on my own. I got to remember that it's all about you. And that at the end of the day, no matter how bad it gets, you've always promised that you're going to be there. Am I really tapping into this idea that you're a deliverer, that you will save me, that you will rescue me? Or am I over here still thinking that, uh, like Jeremiah says, I can light my own torches and find my own way? You know, but if I could just come to church and scratch the itch or do a couple ritualistic things, I'll feel better about myself, but I'm really pretty competent and pretty capable. So I'm just going to light my own torch and go my own way. So again, the whole idea is when we're over here trying to serve God, the things that are religious have to be things that benefit other people and bring relationship together. So it's a real interesting question that we always have to ask. When I was reading those seven woes, I was scared to death. Because, I mean, if you land here and you start doing things that don't involve God, um, you're, you're kind of in the, you're in the worst of all positions. Okay, so, so where are we with this? We need to be in relationship with God. And it's easy when we don't feel like we have needs to use the, thing that, the things that God has given us to kind of pursue our own agenda. The guy, Don, it's not Ron Golden, it was Don Golden. When we were in Baltimore this week, Don Golden was talking about his book. And here's the interesting principle that kind of stuck for me. He said, you know, we named the book Jesus Wants to Save Christians because if you look at all of Scripture, the prophets and everything else and the judges, they're always sent back to God's family, God's people. Even Paul, who is the great kind of missionary to the, the people outside of God's family, whenever he'd go to a town, he'd always go to a synagogue first. And the whole idea was the message was always coming back to not the people who hadn't heard it, but the people who didn't get it. Let me say that again. The message, even with Jesus going to Israel, okay, throughout Scripture, by and large, was not to the people who hadn't heard it, but the people who didn't get it. And, and the whole principle there, I think what Don was trying to get at is that Jesus needs to save Christians first. That the family of God needs to realize that we are the family of God. We're in this dependent relationship. It's not about us as unique, individualistic, independent Americans doing our own spiritual thing to to kind of build ourselves up or prop ourselves up. But we're knit into this collaborative deal with God at the head and we are to follow and we are to look to him uh, with faith, even when times get bad, we're not supposed to go find another relationship to fix our problems. That this whole thing is going on and that God has to save that first because if he doesn't save this or fix this, there's no hope for the other people. How are you supposed to bring people into a family or multiply this kingdom out if the kingdom doesn't get it itself? And so the king, Jesus, comes and he proclaims the, the, the beginning of this kingdom and he's talking to people that know God and should get it. And I thought, wow, that's a really fascinating principle. Jesus needs to save Christians. That we, in some sense, need to hear the gospel 
first and really get it before we go and talk to other people about the gospel. The gospel did not make your life better. That's not why it's great news. Hosea's life was a heck of a lot worse when he started following God by circumstantial um, reasoning, right? You're not a Christian because it made your life better. You're a Christian because it solved the problem of sin and put you back into relationship with God. And no matter how bad circumstances are, that is the only place we need to be, we truly want to be, and we should be. It's it's the only eternal kind of place that's going to work long term. And we can work on fixing our circumstances. Christianity might even help. But if we think that's what this religion is about, we've misunderstood Christianity. Because fundamentally, Christianity is not about religion, which is a man thing. It's about relationship with God. Okay, this is not a religion. It's a relationship. How much time have we got? Um, All right, one last last story. I have come to the conviction a long time ago, I came to the conviction that we're always one step away from becoming the Pharisee. The Pharisee was that guy in the middle that just didn't really get it. And, he, and this is why he didn't get it. He began to think, the Pharisees began to think that sin was about specific actions. Okay? We do this too, don't we? Sin is about that person that does drugs. Or that person that ran off on uh, his or her family. Or that person that whatever. That, that sin, those actions... We've completely misidentified sin. Sin is the highway away from God. It's Route 66 of our own doing. And it's got rest stops and hotels and gas stations. They're called drugs or running off on your family or whatever. They're the kind of tangible expression where you stop and show up on the radar. But sin is choosing self and promoting self and protecting self over and above a dependent relationship with God, where we follow and we submit. And we, we really need to understand that sin, if we really get it, you can be, you, can, you might be there and be the best Christian you've ever been, man. You could go to a Southern Baptist church and they would, they would put you up like poster, virtuous person of the month. You could have it dialed. I'm serious. Yet be completely, completely in sin. Why? Because you've walked away from God, you're trusting your own righteousness, and you've got pride. You've become the Pharisee. And that's what the Pharisees didn't get. And I, I look at that, I'm like, man, that's so easy. Religion, to, to just fall into religion is so much easier than relationship. And we're always one step away from it. So when I was young and getting into trouble Every time I opened my mouth down at this Baptist church in California, I taught this evening class to a bunch of the pastors and elders. Is this big to-do evening class. And I went in there one night, and I'd taken from the premier reference dictionary called, uh, it's the IV, I think IVP, Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. It's like standard work. And I went and found Pharisee, and I took the paragraph for Pharisee, and I changed three words. I changed... Hasmonean dynasty to um, 20th century, I don't know, whatever, America. I changed Sadducees to liberal, and I changed Pharisees to conservative evangelical. Those are the only three words I changed in the whole definition, big fat definition. 
So I've got the elders here and some pastors and, and all these well-to-do people in the church. And I, I put it up on the board. And I said, hey, let's analyze this definition of conservative evangelical, which was really the definition of Pharisee. And they, they looked through it, read through it and all this. And I said, hey, give comment. I dragged it out for like a half hour, okay? And then I like pulled, pulled the kind of cord on it. And I was like, you guys have just been praising, praising the definition of Pharisee. And then I kind of went into this thing about if that doesn't send up warning flags, you know, and I kind of went into this phrase, I think we're always one step away from being the, the Pharisee. I got in so much trouble for that. Senior pastor pulled me aside the next day and said, you know, you young, immature, how could you embarrass pastors and elders and their wives like that? Da, 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 da. You know, you're supposed to build people up, not pull the rug out from underneath them. And I said, I, I was so confused. I, I was always confused when I got in trouble. I don't think I really ever did anything wrong. But I, I looked at the guy, I was like, I mean, I was perplexed. And I was just like, did they get it? And he, he didn't understand my question. And what I was basically trying to say was, look, I don't care whether their sensibilities were offended by that. Did they get it? Did they get it? Because it's not about religion. You see, it's about relationship. And we who love Scripture and love this thing called Christianity, love our religion, have to be very careful. Because pretty soon, um, it's not going to be hockey we're playing anymore. Right? I don't know what it's going to be or if it's killing time before dinner, but it's not going to be hockey anymore. It's going to just degenerate down into our own deal. And we've got we've to somehow work on that. So maybe that's a brief overview to this collaboration series we're going into. And we're going to start looking at some really specific things that I hope will be like pulling the rug out. Maybe I won't get in trouble this time. But really starting to take a look at some sacred cows in church leadership or church structure or the whole idea of what it should be. Or, or, and begin saying, is that really right? Is that really where we're supposed to go? Is that really relationship with God and others? Or is that whatever? I mean, are we really getting it ourselves? Jesus wants to save Christians. Or are we just somehow um, playing a good game? So that's what we're going to be looking at in the next several weeks. Uh, just a warning. Um, it'll be interrupted at some point by, by a baby in my family. So it'll be a broken series. Um, we'll finish it sometime. Um, and we're going to head into that. So the guys are going to come up. And we're going to do the offering and then close into him. And if you've got those connecting cards, we'd love to see those and just know that you are here. Um, and let's pray together. Father, you've taken so, you've made so many efforts and, and gone to uh, such a degree to communicate just this one central theme that wherever we stand, it needs to be in relation to you. That there's nowhere that we stand that's independent from you. That there's nothing we do or nothing we desire that doesn't somehow come back to you or, or, or relate to you. And, and so as we go through this series, Father, I just pray that this whole idea of withness and the idea of remembering you and of following you and of involving you, that this idea of relationship rather than religion would just get riveted and... and and burned and, and just stamped into us. That we'd be a different kind of Christian that you could bring orphans into, you know, that you could bring people to this church because hopefully we'd get it. 
that you wouldn't have to send prophets to this church to tell us that, hey, we need to be saved because we don't get the kingdom idea ourselves, that we don't get the gospel first and foremost. Father, I just pray for this church. I pray that you bless it. I pray that you'd break us. I pray that you'd humble us. I pray that we'd get it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.